This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. Well, we asked you to tell us your favorite aviation movie, and you responded in great numbers. This episode, we take a look at our listeners' favorite aviation movies. In the news, the FAA is investigating Boeing after the Alaska Airlines 737 MAX 9 cabin door plug incident. Also, immediately after that explosive decompression, the cockpit door swung open. It's designed to do that, but it's not in the manual. Then, a British Airways pilot was kidnapped and robbed. Very unpleasant. Spirit Airlines initiates a sale leaseback transaction with 25 planes to pay their debt. NetJets institutes a mandatory 70-year retirement age for pilots. And Cirrus Aircraft announces a new generation of the SR-22. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 783 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight. I kind of have my voice back. And with me is, wow, a big crowd. First, Rob Mark. He's contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, a CFI, former air traffic controller, and he publishes the Jetwine blog. Hey, good evening from Chicago, where it's a balmy... Uh, let's see, what is it right now? Minus two Fahrenheit, but otherwise it's marvelous. Burr, that is cold. Also with us is Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a national CFI of the year, and he's an expert on the Cirrus aircraft. Rob, I send you uh, warm thoughts and uh, gloves and earmuffs. And in fact, it looks like you're wearing earmuffs right now. <laughs> Oh, okay, those are my standard ears. Don't make okay. fun of those. <laughs> well, your standard oversized headset. Yes. Also joining us is David Vanderhoof, our aviation historian. He's from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, all. Looking forward to um, an interesting conversation tonight. And to help us with that, we have our main man, Micah. Hi, Micah. Hey, great to see everybody. Wonderful that we have a big crowd tonight. And earmuffs were invented by Chester Greenwood here in Maine in 1873. <laughs> Where else would they have been invented, right? And then to round out the group, we also have Brian Coleman. He's our former associate producer and co-host. Now he's a contributor. Of course, Brian hosts the Journey is the Reward podcast with our main man, Micah. Hi, Brian. Hey, Max and everyone. Hope everyone is... Uh not freezing to death here in the U.S., and we're going to have a great show tonight. Trying to keep warm. Well, towards the end of last year, we asked all of you to tell us your favorite aviation movie that wasn't Top Gun. Well, why exclude Top Gun? Well, because those movies are wildly popular, and it makes the results less than interesting. So we excluded Top Gun. Now, as it turns out, the results have been hugely interesting. We're going to tell you about all of that shortly, but first we have some aviation news from the past week. Is everyone ready? Ready from the West. Ready. Midwest is on. Mainly ready. Ready. 
First story comes from CNBC. FAA investigating if Boeing failed to ensure certain aircraft were safe for operation after a door blew on Alaska Airlines plane. So, uh, Rob, this comes out of the uh, the 737 MAX 9 and uh, the grounding after the uh, Alaska Airlines door exited the aircraft. And uh, so what's the latest on this now? It's not been it's not been a kind uh, couple of uh, weeks for uh, Boeing, uh, who is again on the hot seat for a problem with their seven three seven aircraft. Uh, and before it was the early maxes that uh, uh, you know the one crashed in Ethiopia, the other one Indonesia. The airplane was grounded for two years, and we really thought that FAA and and Boeing and everybody all kind of came together and saw the light. And uh, it, it appears from what has been going on since this door blew out of the MAX 9 uh, about 10 days ago that uh, somebody has, somebody or something has kind of fallen through the cracks. Uh, it looks as if uh, either FAA has not really been as uh, closely following Boeing as uh, they said they were going to be, or that uh, Boeing uh, allowed a subcontractor to fall through the cracks. In this case, Spirit, uh, who builds the fuselages for the uh, uh, 737s, uh, or Boeing in the final assembly stage. Uh, all we know is that the airplane, uh, the, the Max 9 series, is again grounded indefinitely because there are just too many people that are concerned that. Uh, Boeing missed something somewhere, and um, I don't think there's anything the rest of us can say except, yeah, kind of looks like it. So we're we're going to have to see what happens. As uh, how long is uh, Boeing going to be uh, grounded this time? You know what's different between this one and uh, the original groundings is that with the original groundings it was the design issue. This is probably, and you know, I'm not trying to. Uh, Yes, but it's probably going to come down to either a quality control issue or a metallurgic, metallurgical issue with the bolts themselves and a, and a parts supply issue. And that's almost scarier because it means that Boeing isn't watching it from a lot of different directions. Well, I think we could go back many, many years. And I know, Micah, you and I have had this discussion that once uh, the Boeing-McDonnell-Douglas uh, merger came to be, the direction of Boeing completely changed from a uh, an engineering focused organization to a, uh, a bottom line organization. I mean, let's be serious. Who runs Boeing right now? An accountant. So it's it's probably not too strange to think that uh, making money is is a uh, high priority for them and improving shareholder value. Uh, but you know. You can't build airplanes that that don't meet the safety standards. And I think what really happened with this one, sure, the door came loose. Luckily, nobody was hurt. But it really, I think Boeing really took a hit in the PR side because people are really starting to say, you know, we kind of thought maybe Boeing, you know, let something slip a couple of years ago. But here we are again. What else have people missed? in this airplane that we haven't even heard about yet. And I think it's going to take them longer this time to get past that. Yeah. I think this is a cultural problem. 
the quality culture problem. But the FAA has uh, said that uh, all of these circumstances indicate, and this is a quote, that Boeing may have failed to ensure its completed products conformed to its approved design and were in a condition for safe operation in accordance with quality system inspection and test procedures. So the FAA is looking into that. Uh, I caught a part of a uh, piece by Dominic Gates. Oh, yeah. In Seattle, and I, I think he commented that the uh, uh, or the NTSB has said that uh, Boeing is going to um, you know add some inspections to their process. But you know, I read that and I thought, you know, there's this thing that's called cost of poor quality, and what that means is you you look at within your company all of the financial implications of having less than perfect quality. And usually when you add all that up, you end up with a gigantic number that surprises everybody. Adding more inspectors just increases your cost of poor quality. That doesn't solve the problem. What you really want is you want fewer inspectors because you want a quality system that doesn't depend on inspectors catching problems. And it just sounds like Boeing, to me, as an outsider in my uh, Monday uh, evening easy chair here. It just sounds like Boeing has lost their quality culture. And that's not something that is easily correctable. You know, it's not just adding inspectors. There's there's a lot more to it. But we'll see. I was going to say, and it even, it, it goes much further than that, even getting into Boeing's documentation, which sort of leads us to the next story. That's right. Rob, you found this. This is uh, so when we heard about this incident with um, with the um, Alaska Airlines plane, one of the things I noticed in at least one of the initial articles was some comment about the cockpit door slamming open after the explosive decompression of the cabin. And, uh, <laughs> Rob, we learned something kind of interesting about that situation, don't we? Well, yes, we did. Uh, we knew that there were pressure uh, uh, sensors, essentially pressure grates in the uh, cockpit bulkhead because the the airplane is pressurized. And, of course, if the cabin blew out, you wouldn't want the cockpit to be at a much higher pressure uh, than the rest of the cabin. You know, it's it needs to all be balanced. And uh, they said, you know, I saw this and they said the cockpit door blew open during the depressurization, I thought, what? What the heck is that about? And they kept talking about it as if, well, yeah, sure, it, it blew open. I mean, uh, and and no one could quite figure it out. And then we found out uh, during the course of the week that the uh, little grates that are supposed to help equalize pressure during decompression either were blocked or something, but the whole door was yanked open. And they, it was uh, probably uh, a little alarming in most cases, except that the cabin chaos probably prevented anybody from noticing that the cockpit door was open because there was probably so much yelling and screaming back there. Uh, but then the uh, flight attendant tried to close the door, and they couldn't get it to close uh, because it had come out with such force that it had done some damage to the uh, to the mechanism and. Anyway, and everybody said, yeah, but why did the door come open again? Uh, and, and we found out that Boeing has a, uh, 
and, and apparently Airbus too, that there is a mechanism that when there's a decompressor, uh, I'm sorry, that when there's a uh, a decompress, you guys know what I'm talking about, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, that when the cabin decompresses, uh, it is made to open so that there is not this incredible pressure differential uh, between the cockpit and the cabin. And uh, many pilots said, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> We've been flying these airplanes for years, and we didn't know it had that. Uh, and so it, it's shades of what we saw in 2018 and 19 with the, uh, the MCAS system that uh, Boeing conveniently didn't tell pilots about uh, at all during transition training or or even initial crew training uh, because they just thought it wasn't necessary. The airplane was automated enough uh, that it, it was uh, it was uh, just not needed. And what Boeing found out is that they're not as automated as Airbus is because uh, we constantly hear about these crazy things going on with Boeing. And I said to somebody on CBS the other day, maybe it's time that some people from uh, Boeing and, and Airbus and FAA got together and kind of sat down and compared notes to say, why does this, uh, why, why do these seeming manufacturing issues and operational issues keep happening with Boeings, but they don't seem to be happening with Airbus aircraft, uh, at least as a place to start? Because something has gone god-awful wrong at Boeing. Hey, I'm not trying to be funny here, but I'm really glad that I don't sit in the back of the um, Boeing 737 aircraft. Or when I do stand and talk with the flight attendants, that I don't stand right behind the flight deck door. <laughs> and they, they seem to be two really bad places to be hanging out. Well, for what it's worth, too, though, this plug that blew out of the out of the Max Nine, it could have been in other locations in the cabin. I don't know if it was restricted to only being in in that row twenty six. Maybe I'm not an engineer, but uh, uh, it, it's uh, you know, if the door had blown at twenty six thousand feet instead of sixteen thousand, we, we'd have been lose, we'd have lost a lot of people. And uh, as it was, what was it, Max, you mentioned, or, or maybe Micah did, about the, the iPhone that was found on the ground uh, that had blown out of the airplane, and it still worked? 16,000 uh, feet. That's the ultimate drop test. It, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really is. But uh, this ain't supposed to be happening. No, no. It's also a good reason to keep your seatbelt on. Did all. Oh, you got it. <laughs> Think, too, about somebody carrying a lap, lap child. I mean, a baby in their arms, if that just happened to be the moment that you just kind of relaxed yourself for half a second to reach over and grab something out of the, the uh, pocket in front of your, uh, your seat and the door blew, that baby would have been gone. Uh, and it would have been, it would, it would really have been ugly, I think. I saw that the FAA apparently, it was just the headline I read, is starting to rethink lap children in the, uh, you know, in the aftermath of that. So yeah, I mean, that, that's a really good point. And somebody lost his shoes and, you know, stuff just got, a uh, kid lost his shirt. So yeah, stuff just went, you know, sucked right out of the aircraft. Somebody was, I was speaking with somebody yesterday about the cockpit door and, and they said, how could that fail? That, that's a terrible failure. It shouldn't happen. And I had to explain, no, that's not a failure. That's a feature. It's just, we forgot to tell the pilots that it's a feature. 
Right. Yeah. And in fact, the uh, the chair of the NTSB, Jennifer Hamadi, said that uh, Boeing would make clear in its Max uh, Max Nine manual that uh, you know that you can expect the door to to open under conditions like that. But yeah, again, it's something else that. Uh, is, is kind of important to the uh, operation of the aircraft that's not in the manual. Pilots like to know how they work. Yeah, and certainly being a pilot, I think I would want to know, or it makes me question, what else haven't they told me? Yeah. You you got it. Absolutely. The other thing that came up in the conversation I was having the other day is that there's already a class action suit that's starting against Alaska, Alaska Airlines. And I said, why would it be against Alaska? This should be against Boeing. Alaska is as much of a victim as the passengers were. Yeah, it seems that way, certainly at this at this point. Maybe they went for Alaska because they wanted some deep pockets, and they said, gee, Boeing's leveraged up to its eyeballs, and they'll get more money out of Alaska. That's terrible. Yeah, but possibly. All right, we have an item from PaddleYourOwnCanoe.com. Uh, Max T, this one is, this is kind of distressing. Yeah, this is really amazing. A story is that uh, a British Airways pilot who was on a layover in Johannesburg, uh, South Africa, was assaulted and kidnapped uh, and basically blackmailed. I mean, it's just incredible what they did to this guy. It turns out that uh, British Airways knows that there's a, a, an issue with the crime. And so a uh, flight crew stays at a secure private development, apparently some type of, they described it as a heavily guarded gated community. Uh, but this gentleman decided to uh, leave the community to go to a supermarket a, a few minutes uh, away from there. And he was approached by, by a woman to uh, help him uh, to help her load her shopping into her car. And when she got there, he was kidnapped by others that were waiting for him. And basically, they cleaned out his uh, bank accounts. They took compromising photos of him so that he would hopefully not report this to anyone. Um, but the, the uh, British Airways had a captain back in July who was robbed and stabbed when he went for a jog outside the same gated community. Now, the thing that really shocked me was – at the bottom of the story here from Paddle Your Own Canoe, it says, according to his official statistics, there have been an average of 75 killings and 400 aggravated robberies in South Africa every single day over the last year. I mean, that is <laughs> that's a stunning statistic. The uh, when I was still flying biz jets, this is back in the last century, I think. No, I guess it was well close to it, but uh, I mean, we, we took. Um, uh, the hawker or something down to uh, Venezuela. And uh, when we landed, uh, we had escorts through everything. And when we got to the hotel, they said, okay, guys, don't go anywhere. Don't do not go out because just don't. And they said, if you need anything, you call room service. It's all covered. Don't worry about it. And uh, we looked at each other and said, okay, we're not going anywhere. I mean, I, I can certainly depend on somebody that knows the lay of the land better than I. And when they say, you don't want to do that around here, I go, okay, gotcha. Uh, and I don't understand how this, this captain uh, just, well, I guess maybe if it was a, a store that was close by, you know, just a block away. I mean, uh, okay, maybe you could see how that might slip in, but... Uh, uh, the other one about going for a jog in a foreign country, 
I no, I don't think that's a good idea. Well, having been to South Africa and Johannesburg several times in the past two years, um, I can certainly see how something like this could happen, especially if people aren't careful and aware. Johannesburg is indeed a dangerous city. I think being in a neighborhood like that or a community that's a guarded community, the bad guys know that wealthy people are staying there. So you're sort of a target to begin with. I'd like to know if this happened during the day or at night. I'm assuming that it happened at night or at least the twilight hours. Um, yeah, that would, that would make a difference. And I just think regardless of where you are in Johannesburg, I wouldn't really recommend running solo anywhere. Um, it, it's just not a safe thing to do. Especially if you're on safari, don't go jogging by yourself. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the animals might come after you. You know, Captain Nick of the uh, airline pilot guy, when he was flying for Virgin Atlantic, they would fly into Lagos, Nigeria quite a bit. And he said that when that happened, they were taken under armed guard to the hotel and told not to leave the hotel until armed guard came to pick them up the next morning to return. And, uh, you know, it's not unusual. He didn't leave the hotel. And uh, Nick's a big guy. Um, but uh, I, this is this was not smart of this VA captain. Yeah, I think the lesson is that you really need to understand the environment that you're in. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, this particular first officer wasn't aware. You know, I don't know the exact situation, but in my travels, I learned pretty quickly that you really need to understand where you are, what to do and what not to do. Uh, you know, it, it, when I've been in some place like uh, a Tokyo in Tokyo, you can walk around outside at 3 o'clock in the morning and you basically don't have to worry about anything. Singapore is also a very a very safe environment. But there are other places I've been, uh, Ethiopia, for example, where same situation. You don't go cruising around town by yourself because you don't know where to go and where not to go. Um, my whole time there, I stayed in the hotel. It's another example of... The hotel is, is um, you know, protected, a protected environment. And when I went to meetings with the airline, uh, you know, a car picked me up and took me there. You don't go cruising around on the on the street. So, hey, I could certainly take you to some places in Los Angeles or San Francisco oh, sure. that are equally as dangerous as right. well. So right. that's true. However, if somebody that, that didn't know Los Angeles uh, came to town and said, OK, uh, you'd have to be aware enough to say, OK, where should I stay away from? Uh, uh, or, you know, what's a good place to, if I just want to go for a walk? Okay, don't go there. I, I would just listen to them. I would yeah. not have to experience it to say, oh, yeah, you know, you're right. This guy could have been killed. I mean, let, let's be yep. serious. It only, th this is a happy ending for him. You know, I think there's one other key takeaway here for uh, airline pilots, and that is you may want to just bid the domestic routes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a little tough for a BA guy. Yeah. yeah. Everything is international, practically. All right. Uh, let's move on. We see from simplifying that Spirit has uh, sold 25 aircraft. They're looking to reduce their debt, and this is a this is a sale leaseback kind of arrangement, and um, it now Rob, it's really turned out to be advantageous for them from a financial situation. 
Well, of course, Spirit is still waiting for the uh, thumbs up or thumbs down on the merger with JetBlue. And and I think that uh, uh, Spirit is, in a way, saying, guys, we kind of need to get moving on this because we kind of did this because we kind of needed the money. Um, And so it's a shame. I wouldn't want to see Spirit fail because... uh, you know, they were going to get this boost from JetBlue, but they just couldn't do it in time. But again, I, you know, let's face it, how many of, uh, wasn't Spirit one of the airlines that was also affected by the uh, geared uh, turbofan uh, uh, issue? Uh, I don't think they have any Neos, do they? The best part for people who couldn't see that, it was as Rob was singing, it was the dance that he was doing simultaneously. <laughs> that was the best part of this. <laughs> Well, this is something okay. that you know airlines will will do. In the case of of Spirit, um, they you know they weren't able to make their debt payments on the aircraft they own. So what they do is is they sell the aircraft to a leasing company that nets them a bunch of uh, a bunch of cash, and then lease the aircraft going forward. So in this case, um, this allowed Spirit to pay back or to repay four hundred almost four hundred sixty five million dollars in debt payments. For those aircraft, and then in addition to that, it netted them around four hundred nineteen million dollars in net cash proceeds. So, you know, as a financial transaction, when you're <laughs> when you can't service your debt, uh, it's a you know it can be a really sound approach to it. Yep, absolutely, but but again, why couldn't they service their debt? Yeah, yeah, it doesn't address the structural problem behind no, that. No, no. Uh, yeah, it seems like a really bad stuff. business model long term. So they're not being specific about the particular aircraft that are involved here, and I don't think it's been reported who the leasing company is in this case. Uh, you know, Spirit operates; uh, they have a, an A three twenty family fleet uh, over two hundred aircraft, and this applies to twenty five of them. I don't know how many of the remaining aircraft they own or lease already. I don't know how that breaks out for Spirit, but. Yeah, as you mentioned, Rob, they're still still waiting to hear about the proposed merger with JetBlue. That trial ended in in December. Uh, of course, the U.S. Department of Justice uh, was or uh, is fighting it on antitrust grounds, but there's no ruling on this merger yet. So, like you said, Rob, Spirit was kind of forced to take this action now. Well, but of course, there are we all know that that time around the holidays nothing gets done so who knows whose inbox the paperwork might be sitting in all right we see in ain online uh, that netjets is implementing a mandatory pilot retirement age 70 rob can you tell us a little bit about what's going on here well this this portion of of aviation of Unlike the Part 121 airline uh, system that we're, we might be used to, these are Part 91K of uh, the uh, basically the charter operators, and uh, they they don't if they're not scheduled, they don't have the the uh, age limit that uh, Part 121 airline pilots are forced to uh, uh, forced. I shouldn't say that because depending on how old you are. Uh, some people are saying, I didn't even want to fly till I was 65. Um, but, uh, so th- this, uh, area 
uh, was open to uh, to whatever they wanted to do. And uh, NetJet said, hey, you know what? We've just made a decision. It's going to be 70, and, and that's it. And this affected a few dozen pilots, I believe, uh, maybe a little more, but uh, that uh, and think about this. We're we're talking. We're not talking people that are sixty. We're talking about people that are seventy. And I can tell you that as I have <clears throat> approached that portion of my life, I I can see some definite changes uh, in in my uh, my habits and my abilities. Uh, now that doesn't mean everybody is like me, but uh, NetJets just said, you know what, we're ju- we're doing this, we're doing this. And if you guys don't like it. It's it's too bad, and uh, and so you know now the uh, uh, retirement mandatory retirement age is going to be seventy years old, uh, and as it is right now for one twenty ones, it's sixty five, and that's just the way it goes. And uh, uh, the the courts uh, uh, agreed with them, so um, we just haven't seen this happen on the non airline side before. So it was kind of an interesting. Th- uh, story, I thought. And this comes about because of a uh, Congress spending bill that was adopted in December 2022. And that bill allowed certain part 91K, as well as some 135 operators, to implement an age 70 ceiling if they wanted to. It's optional. It wasn't wasn't mandatory. Uh, to do that, the operator has to have logged at least 75,000 annual jet operations in 2019 or in any subsequent year. So NetJets announced in January, on January 10th, 2023, that they would be implementing this age 70 ceiling on January 10th, 2024. So 12 months notice that they were going to be doing this. But the NetJets Association of Shared Aircraft Pilots uh, Union, they filed a grievance, which NetJets denied, that went to an uh, an arbitration. Uh, The arbiter found no violation and also denied the grievance. And then we have this this lawsuit that's uh, seeking a preliminary injunction to keep the age cap from taking effect on January 10th, 2024. But then the U.S. District Court, Northern District of Texas, Dallas Division rejected their arguments, denied the motion for a preliminary injunction. So the pilots and and their union have been thwarted kind of at uh, every step in terms of um, changing this. So it it looks like this age 70 requirement is is going to stick. Yeah. Well, it it, it did. Yeah. It it went into effect on uh, uh, the 10th, which was uh, last Wednesday. You know, it's funny that you said what you said about flying and and how you're feeling that you're changing a little bit, Rob, because uh, Brian and I just interviewed uh, Captain Jeff on the Journeyers Reward, Episode 60, and he just retired from Delta, Jeff uh, Nielsen from the Airline Pilot Guy podcast. And one of the things we discussed was his retirement. And if he were allowed to continue to fly, would he? And he said... He loved flying and he enjoyed it, but that no, he wouldn't. He can sense the changes within himself, that he slowed down, that he's not as good as he was. He was still safe, uh, but that he really feels that that 65-year-old retirement requirement is appropriate based on his own personal experience, and he thinks it's the right thing to do. And it was it was an interesting conversation. It really was. I, I, I really want to 
put in a stronger plug for that because, uh, Micah, you and Brian had a fantastic interview with with Captain Jeff. And in, in true airline pilot guy fashion, it was probably, what, the longest episode you've ever had? Oh, by far. By yeah. far. We usually do about a 45-minute, maybe an hour episode. This was two hours and 37 minutes. But, you know, well, okay, to be honest with you, it did take me a few days to get through the whole thing, but it entirely worth it. So I really would encourage listeners to, uh, if you haven't heard this interview of uh, uh, The Journey is the Reward, what, what episode number is that? It was episode 60, and to be perfectly honest, we've had the most positive feedback on that episode than any other episode we've done. We've also had the most downloads of that episode over any episode. Yeah. So, yeah, it really seems to be popular, and he had a lot of good stuff to say. He really did. What a fantastic guy he is. Yeah. And the other thing that uh, Brian needs to be given a lot of credit on that because uh, he edited out about an hour of that conversation. <laughs> That's <laughs> oh, true. I did. <laughs> yes. Amazing. Jeez. All right. Now our last story. Hey, we have a serious story. Max, we have a, what, a new a new generation of the SR-22? Yeah, about every seven years or so, Cirrus comes out with a new model. And basically, yeah, the, yeah, the SR-22 was introduced back in, what, 2001, 23 years ago. And it's been the uh, best-selling aircraft in its category for 22 years. So they sell the, the daylights out of them. The G7 is really kind of interesting. What they've done is they have reworked uh, the SR-20 and the SR-22, so that it's got many of the same features of the Vision Jet. And if you think about it, this is actually brilliant. You've got essentially the same avionics and many other features in the aircraft, which are similar, if not the same, as the Vision Jet. What they've really done is they've created a platform that allows pilots to train uh, you know, on the same kinds of systems that they're going to use if and when they step up to the jet. And my recollection is that, you know, at some point in time, I heard a number and I don't remember what it was, but it was like 60 plus percent of uh, the sales initially were to people who were already serious customers. So you have a lot of people uh, stepping up. And the other thing that just occurred to me a day or so ago, what's really brilliant about this is that it's also the perfect step up platform for probably seven or eight other uh, jets and uh, turboprops. Uh, so now I think they've created an additional market, which is folks that want to learn to fly a, uh, a Honda jet, for example, a, a Phenom uh, 300. Um, let's see what else. Some of the turboprops, the, uh, the TBM. Uh, so <laughs> it's just the ideal way for people now to, uh, you know, figure out all the things that they need to do before they uh, step up. And that's a big deal because I've worked with two different people that went to get training on the vision jet. And after two or three days, they left because they were just so stymied. They were just having so much difficulty wrapping their head around totally new avionics. Ultimately, they both uh, were able to get some additional training from me and then they went back. These are people I didn't know before, but, you know, people who needed some help. So it is, uh, it has been a, a big, uh, you know, step up in the past uh, for people transitioning. Now it's just going to be totally simple. So I think brilliant that they did that. Some of the cool features that they have, one of the biggest ones in my mind is a stick shaker. This is the first piston aircraft that I can think of that has a stick shaker to warn pilots of when they are approaching a stall. And if you think about that, 
the Storhorn just doesn't have the, the same, it doesn't capture your attention quite as much as having your hand start to shake uh, and, uh, on the device that you need to now push forward immediately on that. So I, I love the idea that they've moved the stick shaker, which is found in virtually every jet uh, into the uh, the piston aircraft. Uh, they've also got auto-switching fuel tanks, which is brand new. I don't know of any piston aircraft, uh, that low-wing aircraft that automatically switches the fuel tanks. Uh, you're going to have that same feature in the uh, the Vision Jet. Uh, flaps, they've done something very clever. Uh, the flaps are now routed through the avionics so that they can do decision-making. And if you try to put the flaps down when you're too fast, well, it's not going to put them down. It's going to wait till you slow down to uh, deploy them. Something that's probably even more important and what has saved uh, a life of uh, a pilot and her passengers is that if you are taking off and you go to raise the flaps and you're too slow, it will not let you raise the flaps. And there was an accident in Houston a few years ago in which an SR-20 had uh, given, I think, four different approaches to one of the Houston airports and kept being sent around because uh, there was just a lot of 737s landing. And unfortunately, on the fourth go-around, she raised the flaps uh, when they were too slow and the aircraft immediately stalled. Uh, So anytime you have flaps up, your stall speeds are higher. This is going to prevent that type of accident from, from occurring. And then there are the avionics. I mean, I'm an electrical engineer. I love avionics. What they have done is they're using the same software, essentially, that's in the Vision Jet. So the uh, touchscreen, let me think, Perspective Touch Plus is the name of it. Uh, And so now um, if you're flying an SR-20 or SR-22, it's pretty much all the same uh, buttons that you need to push. Uh, the displays are about 35% bigger. So anyway, they have done just amazing things. So I, I think uh, they've knocked it out of the park on this one. And I will say, if anybody's thinking of ordering one, call me first. <laughs> so we can, we, we can talk about a few things to, uh, to help help each other out on that. Uh, but just go to aviationnewstalk.com and click on contact on the uh, top of the page and be happy to uh, help you with some inside baseball. And we have a a video from a series that's on on their YouTube channel that kind of talks about the the changes and all in the plane. And we'll have that in the show notes. Uh, You know, and even if this isn't an aircraft that you're likely to be a purchaser of, uh, I think it's an interesting video because it really shows you what the Cirrus aircraft is all about. Uh, you know what the what the uh, sort of the the strategy is or the design philosophy behind it, um, and it, it it really you, know, you hear people talking about the Cirrus, and it really gives you a a nice idea of just what that airplane is all about. So I encourage people to check that out. Yep. It seems super cool. Yeah, they've really driven innovation in the last twenty years in the industry. So yeah, it's pretty. Max, impressive. I got I got. Two questions for you. One is, sure. didn't they do something with the uh, the, the parachute uh, handle so that it's more accessible or more easily accessible in terms of the cover? I, I thought I read something about that. Yeah, that was there the is. First one. So they've moved the placard. It used to be the placard was on top of the handle, which meant that if you did things in the standard way, you'd have to remove that placard to get to the handle. A lot of people used to move the placard to somewhere else so that the handle would be less covered. But now they've solved that problem. The placard does not cover the handle when you're in flight. So, Which is good because if you think about it, in an emergency, one of the things I've read is that we lose our kind of fine motor skills, which means it's going to be a lot harder to grab onto something with your fingers. Uh, In fact, it's a very thin tab that you would grab. And if you're... um, 
in a spin, for example, airplanes moving around a lot, kind of hard to move your hands anyway. So I like it. I think it makes total, total sense. The other question I had is a little more generalized. And I don't know if I've asked you this before, but it's all touchscreen. And in my car, I hate the touchscreen because, you know, I'm trying to keep my eye on the road. And it used to be when I had knobs and switches and buttons, I could feel where it was. And I just had a general sense of where it was without having to look at it. But with a touchscreen, I've got to look to see where I'm going. How does that affect flying? I mean, how do you feel about a touchscreen versus knobs and screens and buttons when you're flying? Sure. The uh, the user interface on this particular touchscreen is far superior to what preceded it, which would have been the, the G1000 in perspective. And the reason it is is because you know, for those systems, which were based on the Garmin 430 that came out in 97, so what, 27 years ago, and the, the model there was that essentially you had to push a button to get a cursor. And then if that cursor was on, the knobs would do one thing. If that was cursor was off, the knobs would do another thing. And that really just got in the way. People are constantly turning the knobs and they're in the wrong mode because they haven't noted whether the cursor is on or the cursor is off. But the touchscreen, there is no cursor on cursor off. You just touch what you want to do and it just speeds things up and the number of you know, miscues, if you will, just drops substantially. So I absolutely love it. The only downside might be when you're in turbulence. Yeah, your hand might be flying around a little bit. But what I like to do is I'll take my little finger, put it on the side of the display just to kind of anchor my hand. Rob is smiling, probably does the same thing. And then I can, you know, have very good control with my index figure. So yeah, it works out great. You know, the other thing versus the car, when we're up there flying along at altitude, we don't have to worry too much about staying in the lane or, uh, you know, drifting off under the shoulder. So it's right. it's less of an issue if our, if our eyes are not looking out for a moment as we work on the touchscreen. But, you know, one thing I noticed in when we were talking about the stick shaker is that I, I don't know about you, Max, but when I was learning to fly, I always had a stick shaker in every airplane I flew, except that it took me years to figure out it was me sh- shaking the stick because I was so scared. Uh, I didn't realize. I thought it was the airplane. And okay, well, I, we'll save that for another. another I, night. I could see where that was going. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I thought I thought you were going to say it was your students that were shaking it because they knew they were uh, flying with you as an instructor. <laughs> oh, oh, that was that was cruel. Max. Oh, you know that I'm was, joking. That was that was absolutely cruel. I am crushed. <laughs> Now, if those of you listeners, for those of you that are also crushed, <laughs> send us an email at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com and let's beat the hell out of Matt. No, that, that goes to I am really offended at yahoo.com. Let's, yeah, let's there say you where go. it goes. Oh, it should. Right. Uh, and, and, and Micah, the reason why you don't like touchscreens is because you're old. If you were 20, 30 something <laughs> year old, you wouldn't have an issue with using a touchscreen. Like the rest of us is what you meant to say. <laughs> well, it's funny because we use it on, a, on an iPhone all the time and we don't really think of it, except that I am focused on the phone right here. I'm not trying to drive. I'm not trying to fly. Exactly. I'm not trying to do anything else. And, and, and that does make a difference. I'm not trying to cross the street. Uh, you know, any, any, Oh, that thing kills me. I, I just can't believe it when I'm driving in city streets and people start to walk, you know, they, they enter the walkway, start to cross and they never look at the cars coming at them. I mean, I wonder how many people have, have died because they got hit because they never bothered to look left or right when they enter the street. And when you blow the horn at them, they, they look at you and then they just keep going. Yep. Hey, it's my street. I'm in it. What's your problem? Uh, anyway, yep. we won't get started on that. 
Let's talk about favorite aviation movies. And uh, Rob, you kind of hatched this idea uh, maybe six weeks ago, four weeks ago, six weeks ago, something like that. Uh, it was me? Yeah. <laughs> yep, this oh. is your fault. Uh, okay. No, I, I don't know why. I, I noticed that I watch an awful lot of uh, – I'm a movie buff anyway, but I, uh, I watched a couple of old movies – uh, and I just happened to think, God, when I think back of the number of airplane movies or aviation-related movies that I've seen in my lifetime, sometimes I saw them by myself, and sometimes it was with a bunch of buddies. And uh, I started thinking, well, there was this one. And, and I started jotting them down. And I said, that's a lot of movies. But uh, And so I just thought it would be interesting to hear what other people said. And, uh, you know, remember when we were cooking this up, I think it was you, Micah, that popped in and said, yeah, but no, no Top Gun. That was me. Uh, it uh, eliminate that. And while I liked the first Top Gun, I, I didn't think the second one was that good at all. Uh, but there are movies that are just iconic in, in my memory. And, and that's why I thought, I wonder what everybody else thinks are the movies that influence their life somehow and my god how many how many are in this list uh micah well we got uh, uh you know our the entries that we received we did incredible on the entries what was it 61 people responded right 61 people responded around 50 different movies but uh, rob before we start to talk about them we should mention that um you suggested sort of a, a sweetener to uh, to this deal that we would have a random drawing of uh, all of people's submissions. Uh, that, that's true, and and uh, I thought it would be neat to give something away from the airplane geeks, and we came up with a 50-buck gift certificate, and uh, we said we would choose the person's name at random from all of the people, the 60-whatever it was, that uh, sent us their suggestions, and... Uh, the winner turned out to be Paul Fisher, who is from uh, Eastern Iowa, over my way. Uh, so uh, we're going to send, uh, and Max, you probably saw my notes about how we're going to send uh, Paul this uh, this gift card. Um, and if not, uh, well, check your email. You know, you've got to get out more. And we should mention that Paul's favorite movie is The Great Waldo Pepper. Yes. Oh, duh. 1975, and uh, Paul said, my grandfather learned to fly in a Jenny, and that movie just resonated with me. I've recently found it on Netflix and enjoyed it all over again. So uh, thanks for uh, submitting that, Paul. And for everybody that submitted, one of the interesting things to me is that there's definitely no consensus. We have uh, many, many different uh, movies suggested. The most popular one was Airplane, and four people thought that was their their favorite. And but it drops it drops down significantly. Uh, three people uh, submitted Memphis Bell, um, and then uh, a bunch of doubles: uh, Devotion, Iron Eagle, America Made. Uh, magnificent men in their flying machines, but otherwise, it just everybody has a different uh, a different favorite for different kinds of reasons. And nobody complained about not being able to vote for Top Gun, 
I didn't see one person in there. Yeah, because it, they weren't that good of movies. Uh, <laughs> well, I thought the original one, again, I, I thought the original one had a cool message. But it, what, to me, a, a good movie isn't just about how many airplanes are in it. It's got to be a good story. It's got to be decent acting, decent direction, uh, good music. I mean, to me, Top Gun, the first one, when they started uh, you know, with the Kenny Loggins in Danger Zone, as it opened on this carrier out in the, I think it was the Indian Ocean or something. I went, okay, wow, this is pretty cool. And so it, it, it draws you in. And some of the rest of these, uh, didn't quite make that same uh, statement on. But how many of, how many of you guys looked at the list and said, I've never seen that movie or that movie or that movie or a lot? Yeah, how many did you have? I probably had at least a dozen that I, I had never seen. I'm sorry to say that, you know, when we took the list that uh, you generated the other day that we got uh, of, I think, 50 films, and then I added the list of films that I talk about a little bit later, uh, I, we came up with a total of 80 films uh, that we, 80 aviation films that we were all aware of. And of those 80, there were four I didn't see. <laughs> wow, that's uh, that, that's pretty exceptional. You know, and a lot of these go back pretty far. I mean, some oh, of them yeah. are, I mean, there's there's things like uh, Failsafe, which I remember, I think, as a kid. 64, maybe, or something, or? Yeah, some of them go back quite a ways, though. 12 O'Clock High from 1949, for example. Um, there were two people that uh, found that to be their favorite. Uh, there was one from the 30s or 40s, as I recall. I'm just looking for it now. Um, well, Failsafe was 1964. That was the year. Oh, wow. And for that, the, uh, the Dawn Patrol. Yeah, there we go. And, 38. Uh, and we're going to have all of these in the, uh, in the show notes. So, um, take a look there. We'll have the list of, uh, of the film, people's comments about, uh, why they found them to be their favorite. And there's all kinds of different reasons. Some of them are sentimental. Some of them are, uh, you know, sort of technical for the, the coverage of the aircraft and, and so forth. There's also going to be a uh, link to IMDb for each of the films. So you can just click on the film, go right over to IMDb and see uh, more information about the stars of that, uh, of that film, uh, some information about uh, uh, where you can see it. Um, some of these are difficult to find. Some of them are pretty available. And I do have a request for people that submitted uh, their their favorite film. Please go take a look at the at the show notes because many of these films have the same or similar names used by more than one film. And in some cases, I could tell which one you were referring to. But some films this reuse the same name sometimes for the same subject, sometimes for completely different subjects. So again, if you submitted, just take a look at the show notes. Find your name in there, and we just used first names, first names, last initials. Uh, find it in there, and if we've got the wrong version of the particular movie that, that you uh, that you suggested, just write to us and let us know, and then we'll we'll fix that. So the show notes will be a great place where you can go and see all of these. Again, um, uh, look at the ones that you haven't um, seen in the past or are unaware of. And I think these would be some, uh, you know, a great list to uh, to go through and you know, sort of add to your collection of of movies to watch. 
You know, it's funny that you would say that most of the films were pretty old, and then you mentioned Failsafe, which was a great film, by the way. I mean, really good. I preferred Dr. Strangelove, which was the comedy version of the same film, but but nonetheless. Um, but in terms of my favorites, and the majority of them were actually before 1960. <laughs> and uh, that that's something that, that I have found, is that the the aviation films from 1960 forward weren't quite as good for, from my perspective. Well, what do you think makes a good film? It's got to have a great storyline. It's got to have good acting. It's got to be able to hold it together in telling the story. Um, and, and, and the aviation shots need to be real and not with, with real aircraft and not cartoons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's for me, I, I picked, uh, I picked Sully as my favorite because of, uh, you know, not just the fact that it was Tom Hanks, but I knew the story, as most of us do, of what happened, but we didn't know the inside story quite the way we did after we saw the flick. Uh, but I, I still remember the, uh, uh, the, uh, perspective uh, they were looking over his i think the it's as if the camera were on the on the uh, uh, instrument panel at the top and they were looking over at at the captain and uh, when uh, they they turned out over the uh, over the river and the controller at new york said uh, did you want to try to make uh, four left at laguardia and you could see at that point, you could look out the window over the captain's shoulder and see how low they already were. And I immediately went, that ain't going to work. I mean, and, and any pilot would say that immediately. There's no chance they knew they were ever going to get past. And, and that was the other thing is you saw all of the buildings that were between where they were over the river and what they probably would have taken out if they had tried to make uh, LaGuardia. And, uh, and all of this is happening in, in a split, couple of split seconds. And I went, yeah, now see that, that was a real moment to me. Not that some of the other ones were not great stories. I mean, I liked, uh, wasn't Dam Busters the one with the, uh, the Lancasters where they yep. had the bomb that's the rolling up bomb. And, yep. yep. True story. Yeah. Fabulous. And, uh, I liked Strategic Air Command. I mean, I loved Spirit of St. Louis. Um, and, uh, well, you know, I don't know. What was another good one? 633 Squadron. I love that one. Keep them flying. Wasn't that a Laurel and Hardy movie? Abbott and Costello. Oh, Abbott and Costello. That's what it was. Okay. Um, I, you know, I mean, uh, wow. And it, what this list did was made me realize how many there are. And now I want to go try and find some of these yeah, because sure. I want to see what people saw in them and see if I see the same thing. And that's the good thing. We don't all see the same thing in each movie. Somebody, it was Todd that wrote in and, and mentioned Flight of the Intruder, which I saw and I liked the film a lot, but I couldn't call it one of my favorites because I read the book and the book was fabulous. Absolutely incredible. Truly one of my favorite books of all time. And especially my, maybe my favorite aviation book. And the film just didn't capture it. And if it can't capture that feeling, that same gut wrenching feeling that I get when I'm reading the book, then I can't think of it as a favorite film if I've read the book, even if it's a good film. Brian, what was your favorite? Mine was Flying Tigers. And 
it's not a very good movie, but for me, it's the memory that I had of watching the movie with my father. And if you remember way back when in episode 200 and some, when I had Micah read the story over, you know, how I became an airplane geek, it was me watching World War II and Korean War movies with my dad growing up and, yeah. you know, me putting my feet in his shoes, pretending they're the rudder pedals and just that experience. I just so distinctively remember the flying tigers. And I think because the plane is so iconic as well. Hmm. And so that's, yeah, that's, that's what my favorite movie was. We heard from our friends down under and uh, Steve Vischer's favorite was the final countdown. This is a 1980 film, and this this came up in uh, from some of our listeners as well. And um, it it's kind of a well, it's an interesting story. A uh, an aircraft carrier, a modern aircraft carrier, goes back in time to uh, to Hawaii. Oh, yes, uh, 1941, just before Pearl Harbor. But it was a it was a science fiction film that took place on the Nimitz with the full cooperation of the Navy, and you saw. Every aircraft in the Nimitz compliment flying in that aircraft. It's got some in that movie. It's got great uh, flying sequences. What was the name of it again? The I Final Countdown. Ah, okay. Yeah, I've seen that a couple of times on TV. That was just a fun, fun movie. And then uh, Grant McCarran, he uh, offered up One Six Right. And of course, that's the Good movie. T- 2005 documentary um, that. Uh, the, well, celebrates the you know the local airport. It looks at the life history and struggles of South uh, California's Van Nuys. Yeah, that's Van Nuys Airport, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, What was the big lift? I don't remember that one. Anybody remember that? uh, I believe it was about the Berlin airlift that was made in the 1950s. Oh. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's a 1950 film. And in that film, a couple of Air Force sergeants, uh, this was Gerard's favorite film, uh, a couple of Air Force sergeants, and this is during the 1948 Berlin airlift, and that stars Paul Douglas and Montgomery. Montgomery Clift was in it. Yeah, that's what yeah, I thought. Yeah. So my favorite is Flight of the Phoenix. Good choice. The old version, the 1965 the yeah. version. Yeah, and uh, it's about a, uh, a the uh, the crash in the desert of a uh, sea. 119 flying boxcar. It's a C88. It's the predecessor to a 119. Ah. Uh, see, I thought it was a 119 as well. I didn't. Totally well, right. w- was the 119 just bigger? 119 was follow-on, yeah. Ah. Uh. They used a 119 in the redo, but the original packet was in the original movie. It's bigger and fatter. Maybe I got the uh, got that from the from the redo, but it's a it's a you know it's it's kind of an interesting story. It's got some twists in it, and it's definitely old school kind of uh, kind of film. Um, but I've always liked the the original version, the nineteen sixty five version of the Flight of the Phoenix. Let's see, uh, we're gonna we're gonna get to some of Micah's um, favorite movies coming up here in in just a minute. But uh, well, he's going to tell us about. He's going to tell us about them. But uh, how about you, David? Do you have a, a favorite? Uh, aviation movie? Well, I gotta, I gotta, given what I do for a living, I have to throw out things like Blue Thunder. And um, I have to throw out 
my all-time favorite helicopter movie, which it's just because it's incredibly bad with Sean Young and Nicolas Cage, Firebirds, which is Apaches and Sean Young in flight suits. So, I mean, that's... The other one I saw in here that wasn't didn't make it as far as helicopters go is Bridges Over Toko Reed. Oh, gosh, I remember that. There was a helicopter in it. Mickey Rooney flew it. That's right, with the top hat. That's what I'm saying, but it didn't make our it didn't make our list. Huh. Um which is I mean it's F nine F Panthers. Um so but I, I I'm a firm believer in, in getting a Jimmy Stewart marathon going. <laughs> so that that involves that involves um strategic air command, um the spirit of St. Louis, and you can also include what were we just talking Ian about? Sack um, and the flight of the Phoenix. Flight of the yes, exactly. and flight of the Phoenix. Yeah, that strategic air command. Yeah. Hey, David. In terms of helicopter movies, did you ever see uh, Birds of Prey with uh, David Jansen? Yes. Which there? We actually we actually did an exhibit on helicopters in the movies and television um, at the museum, where we uh, we run small clips of the various movies that have significant helicopter portions in it, a lot of James Bond, um, as well as what the helicopters were, you know. So there's there's a lot there, but I, if I, if you were going to peg me for one, I would have to say Strategic Air Command is probably the greatest aviation movie of all time yeah. because, you know, when the Brigadier General or at the time Colonel Jimmy Stewart asked the Air Force for a B-36 for six weeks, the Air Force gave it to him. So, you know, all of that real footage was just a giant recruiting tool because eventually Brigadier General uh, Jimmy Stewart wanted it. So it's a really fabulous story. Isn't that the one where he was also flying a B-47 at the end? Yes. And some of the flight scenes in the B-47 is actually Jimmy Stewart piloting it. Because Jimmy Stewart, believe it or not, was qualified in B-17s, B-24s, B-36s, B-47s. And I don't think people realize this, but flew combat in B-52Ds in Vietnam. So he flew combat missions in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam before he retired. We haven't heard from Max T yet. I know what Max is going to choose. He's going to choose the... uh the uh, video of, of him taking helicopter lessons. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, Max, what is your favorite? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, you made a comment earlier about uh, something that was of you know, the most influence on us when we were younger. And I thought about it and I quickly realized the thing that was of most influence to me that was you know related to uh, you know, this kind of thing, uh, Saturday mornings, Sky King. Oh, Wow. The greatest television show ever made, and you know, I just, I just loved being there as a, as a kid watching that. My favorite Saturday show, and uh, you know, it was early sixties, mid sixties. You know, watching this as a, as a little kid in front of the TV, black and white, and I still remember 
as a teenager, when I was at the the local airport, uh, I had started taking flying lessons. I don't, I, I don't think I had soloed at this point, but I saw a Cessna three ten. You parked at the airport, just like the kind that Sky King flew in the the later years of the of the TV show. And I walked over and I thought, oh, I've just got to peer inside of it. And I stepped on the uh, the uh, the step extension that comes out. It had uh, you know this little step that would retract, as I recall. And as I stepped up on it, the airplane kind of shook a little bit. And there I am, eye to eye with the pilot who was sleeping inside the airplane. And his, you know, his head was over on the co-pilot's side. And, you know, his head came up and I swear our eyeballs weren't more than about six inches apart. And there he saw a teenage boy staring into his Cessna 310. And he apparently had stopped at the the airport, uh, Grand Canyon Airport in Wellsboro, Pennsylvania, to to get some sleep. (laughs) And unfortunately, I I watched him fly off probably 20, 25 minutes later because I guess he figured no more sleep was going to be possible. So, yeah, anyway, Sky King is my vote, even though it's not a movie. Hey, David, how about this one? Oh, Whirly Birds is what uh, Rob is holding up. Yeah, because I remember my my first actual air uh, flying machine ride was in a in a Bell forty seven that uh, they they used in the initial series of Whirly Birds. Uh, so to me, that was pretty cool. But you know, it was all cool. I mean, really, when you get down to it, I mean, it's all cool. You know, speaking of of Whirly Birds and Sky King, recently I found on Amazon Prime. The Steve Canyon TV show is back and available with Steve Canyon flying the um, Convair F-102 Delta Dagger. And I remember watching it for the first time. I have vague memories of sitting in the apartment I lived in before my folks and I moved into the house three years old in front of the black and white Admiral TV. And I watched the first three episodes and they're corny as heck, but they're just so much fun to watch. You can see the the F-102, there's a KB-50, all the air craft of the 1950s is in this black and white series and it's about 30 episodes which back then was one season you you know i i do want to i do want to say something to all of you top gun haters out there you know that us us people who actually do like that movie um if it wasn't for all you haters we wouldn't be getting a third one there's gonna be a third one it's amazing that we decide to come out with a anti-Top Gun movie that Paramount announces that production on number three is starting. Did they? I didn't see that. Yeah. It was announced last week, and uh, that'll be the second Top Gun movie that I won't watch. Hmm. Ah, Well, (laughs) I I liked Top Gun. I like both of them for for different different reasons, but... uh, I enjoyed yeah, it as well. I thought the reason we weren't including it was because so many people would, would select that and we wanted to see what other right. movies they might select. Yeah. Wasn't that the reason? Yeah, it wasn't that we hated it. It was just that oh, we no, thought I that hate it. too many I'll people would say that. I hate, it. I, I hate the film. Never liked it. Watched it the first time. Thought it was stupid and won't watch the other ones. But the reason that I said don't use it was because everybody, I think we would have gotten half the people would have said Top Gun. Yeah. I am really you offended know, at Yahoo.com. <laughs> Top Top Gun is not about the airplanes. Meg Ryan and Kelly McGinnis. I mean, that's that's what Top Gun is about. It's about A4s and F4, F14s. Period. That that it, it is some of the greatest military flying of all time. The only the only thing better probably is the flying in um, Final Countdown. Hmm. You know where where the Navy basically you know and basically said, you got whatever you want, carte blanche, 
what do you want to do? You know, and so the only other thing I would suggest is find the Van Halen video for um, Dreams, which happens to um, be the Blue Angels from 1978. If you want to watch an amazing set of flying, watch the Dreams video if you can find that on YouTube. That's that's four minutes of amazing aerial footage. To look for that. And for all of you people that are liking this list, I just want to let you know the Airplane Geek streaming system that will have all of these movies available for just one low price every month no, is no, about no. to debut. <laughs> uh, oh, I wasn't supposed to tell them that, was I? Oh, um, what was there, there used to be a channel like that before the, the History there was Channel. Something what called was that Wings? channel we used to? Yeah, Wings Wings and Discovery, yeah. Wings. Discovery yeah. used to run Wings and, all the time, yeah. And then the darn thing disappeared. Yeah. I thought that was the greatest channel. And, and the Smithsonian also, the Smithsonian Channel also runs quite a few aviation documentaries. Hmm. And now the Weather Channel runs aviation disasters all the time. So, you yeah. know. Yeah. It seems like there's an untapped opportunity here for us. I, I think it's a good idea. Let's start okay. the channel. Well, we're going to play a piece that uh, Micah recorded on this topic. Uh, but just quickly before we do that, again, I want to mention – uh, take a look at the show notes, and the list is is just amazing. I'm sure you'll find some interesting things. Uh, it's fun to look at people's reasons why they chose uh, the particular uh, movie they did. And a, as you know, our, our usual uh, little shortcut link, you can find that at airplanegeeks.com slash 783. But in addition, to make it super easy, we'll also create a shortcut link called airplanegeeks.com slash movies because you can't forget that. Uh, so you can you know use use that as as a reference. Can, can I mention one more that is also super favorite of mine always? Yeah. With uh, Richard Dreyfus and Holly Hunter, I think, uh, where they're uh, uh, firefighting uh, pilots. And uh, it's just, except for the part, David, if you know the movie, where... Holly Hunter is going to take the boot, the airplane out, the A-26, all by herself, and she walks up to it, and the engines are already running, and she just walks up in front of the uh, nose and just climbs in and go. and I go, that ain't going to happen. Nobody leaves the engines running with nobody in the cockpit. Anyway, except for that, I really love well, it. Well, I talk about Always in my little piece, but it's a remake, and I like the original better, so... Wait a minute, there were two of them? Rob, I think you're going to need to listen to this. You know, I, I, I'm mad at you anyway, but I'm always mad at you. But I explained that in the piece because you gave me an assignment that was impossible. But I managed to pull it out at the end. And, well, Max, why don't you let the audience listen to what I have to say here? Well, Rob did it again, put me in a quandary for at least a second time. Maybe the third, if you count when he insulted my mom, Harriet. But he made up for that, so I really shouldn't even mention it anymore. But do you remember when Rob gave listeners the assignment to write in with their favorite airplane? That was sometime back in 2016. You may recall that I had a hard time with the question. In fact, my first response was so unacceptable that David made me redo the assignment. Well, I'm having the same dilemma with my favorite aviation film. It was easy for me to come up with some of my least favorites. Top Gun, both of them. The Aviator, Iron Eagle, Air Force One, Snakes on a Plane, Pearl Harbor, and Flight. I won't even tell you which one of those are so bad, in my opinion, that I've never even seen them. But my favorite? 
That's tough. If I were to narrow it down a bit, like maybe my favorite John Wayne aviation film, that might be easier. There were six total. One of them, Jet Pilot, was a real dog. Two others, Flying Leathernecks and Flying Tigers, they were okay, but I would rule them out as my favorites. But then there's Islands in the Sky, a dramatic telling of a true story of a crash that took place in northern Maine. It features John Wayne, Lloyd Nolan, James Arness, Andy Devine, Harry Carey Jr., and Fess Parker, among others. It was written by Ernest K. Gann, the same author who wrote Fate is the Hunter. A great book, by the way, but another lousy film that would be in with the contenders of my least favorites of all time. But Islands in the Sky was a terrific John Wayne aviation film. Parts of it were actually filmed in Presque Isle, Maine. Then there was The Wings of Eagles, another true story, directed by John Ford, based on the life of Frank Spigweig, naval aviator, film writer, and Ford's good friend. It tells the history of U.S. naval aviation from its inception through World War II. It features John Wayne, of course, and Dan Daly, the beautiful Maureen O'Hara, and one of my all-time favorite character actors, Ward Bond. The Wings of Eagles is a film I've seen countless times. I've always loved it. But my favorite John Wayne aviation film? Do you know which one is left? Does this tune ring a bell? That's the opening of the Oscar-winning score by Dmitry Timokin from The High and the Mighty. Really, the first major hit airplane disaster film that directly led to the Airport series. Released in 1954 in Cinemascope and Warner Color, it takes place in an airliner, a DC-4, N4665V to be exact, flying from Honolulu to San Francisco when there's an engine problem. John Wayne is the first officer, and Robert Stack is a captain. You probably know Robert Stack as Captain Rex Kramer in the film Airplane, where he's specifically parodying his role here in The High and the Mighty, but who I always think of as Captain Stuart Hamilton in the 1947 film Fighter Squadron. Claire Trevor is in The High and the Mighty. You may remember her as playing the woman of ill repute in John Ford's 1939 film Stagecoach, also with John Wayne. John Quaylen is in The High and the Mighty, too. He's an amazing character actor, whose name you may not know, but you've seen him more times than you realize. He was one of director John Ford's regulars, and he was in The Searchers, The Grapes of Wrath, and just too many others to name here. But really, The High and the Mighty had a huge cast, many of whom you would recognize from other roles, and I just don't have time to name them all. But you see my difficulty? Those are only John Wayne films. I haven't even touched on other films. For example, remember Gary Cooper in Task Force? Well, not just Gary Cooper, but also Jane Wyatt, Walter Brennan, and Julie London, among others. It was a 1949 film that traces the development of U.S. aircraft carriers from the USS Langley, CV-1, to the USS Franklin, CV-13. It was done with the full cooperation of the Navy and is part black and white and part in Technicolor. And I already mentioned Fighter Squadron. There it goes again, that earworm. Mm -hmm. 
And of course, I can't hear that Max Steiner tune without thinking of the 1941 film Dive Bomber with Errol Flynn, Fred McMurray, and Ralph Bellamy, another one of my favorites. The Academy Award-winning 1927 silent film Wings featured many big stars you may not have ever heard of, including Charles Buddy Rogers, Richard Arlen, and L. Brendel. But there was a small part for Gary Cooper that started his career in Hollywood. The big Hollywood star in the film, however, was Clara Bow, and being that Wings was filmed before the Hayes Code, she seemed topless in one segment. That doesn't mean it wasn't an action-packed aviation film, and wow, what an ending. Wings was incredibly technically advanced for the time. It was color-tinted, and there were some scenes done in an early widescreen process known as Magnoscope. No wonder it won the Academy Award for Best Picture and Best Engineering Effects. In fact, it's the only silent film to ever win Best Picture. Hell's Angels, the 1930 Howard Hughes film, was originally shot as a silent film, but was never released that way. Hell's Angels was redone as a talkie, and Gene Harlow starred in it because the original actress, Greta Nissen, had too much of an accent for a talkie. It's also the only color film footage of Gene Harlow and was one of Paul Mance's first jobs as a stunt pilot. Did you know that Abbott and Costello made an aviation film? Spread your wings, you eagles, and fly. Time for fledglings to take to the air. Hit the beam and get those planes in the sky. And let's keep them flying there. We're an all-American team. Keep Em Flying was a pre-war comedy that takes place in the U.S. Army Air Corps and features some great Abbott and Costello comedy routines and some amazing flying shots that were supervised by Paul Mance. Not only that, but Martha Ray performs Pigfoot Pete in it, and you gotta love that. They say that there's a guy they call Bigfoot Pete. He plays piano by ear. Turn he plays all night for pigs, feet, and beer. He's murder on the 88. He's the guy that brought the boogie woogie up to date. He's got a cannon in his left hand and a rifle in What did I tell you? The 1942 film, Captain of the Cloud, stars James Cagney, Dennis Morgan, and a few of my other favorite character actors. Alan Hale Sr. as Tiny Murphy, George Tobias as Blimp LeBeck, and Reginald Gardner as Scrounger Harris. Where do you get character names like that? Captain of the Clouds was billed as, and I quote, the first magnificent story of the daredevil pilots behind Canada's flying cannons. Sure, some of the plot line was a bit corny, but the film also featured Air Marshal William Billy Bishop playing himself. You can't ask for more than that. But then there is more. You're off for the big show tonight. So fly and wing to wing. Your angels of hell and you fight. For country and for king. Your captains of the clouds. Better roll your on your way. 
The musical score was written by none other than Max Steiner, this time with Harold Arlen, and lyrics by Johnny Mercer. The piece became so popular, it was adopted as an official song of the Royal Canadian Air Force. They just don't write them like that anymore. But wait, there's still even more. Three of the actual aircraft used in the film, a Norden Norseman, a Fairchild 71, and a North American NA-64 Yale, are all on display at different museums in Canada. Gosh darn, another one of my favorite films, one I've written about before, was released in 1943. The Howard Hawks film Air Force starred John Ridgely, Gig Young, Harry Carey, John Garfield, and once again, George Tobias. But the real star of the film was the Marianne, a B-17B flying fortress. That film was the one that made me fall in love with the B-17. A few years later, in 1945, God is My Co-Pilot was released, also starring Dennis Morgan and Alan Hale Sr. This time, Alan Hale plays a missionary in China, and Dennis Morgan starts off as a pilot who's aged out of combat and is left to DC-3s, flying the hump from India to China. Eventually, he ends up flying for General Chenault, played by Raymond Massey, and becomes a part of the American Volunteer Group, the AVG, of the Republic of China Air Force, what we refer to as the Flying Tigers. Okay, let's get a bit goofy for a minute. Have you ever seen the 1957 film Zero Hour? If you haven't, don't, unless you want to laugh. It's actually pretty funny, but it wasn't meant to be. They were trying to make a serious film. In fact, Arthur Haley, the author of the novel Airport, was one of the screenwriters. But Zero Hour became so overly melodramatic that it was the basis for the 1980 comedy Airplane. Watch Airplane first. Have your laughs that go along with it. Then go back and watch Zero Hour. You'll laugh again. But remember, Zero Hour wasn't meant to be funny. Have you noticed that I've already talked about more than 15 of my favorite aviation films and I haven't really gotten past the 1950s yet? Okay, let's move along. But we will stay goofy. Those magnificent men in their flying machines, or How I Flew from London to Paris in 25 Hours and 11 Minutes, was released in 1965 with an earworm of a Velcro title song. It was a British comedy and even featured two very funny well-known British actors, Terry Thomas and Benny Hill. Now remember, I said this film was hysterical, not historical. So while it's not something you want to watch for accuracy, even in aircraft, let alone the story, it's fun to watch for some great laughs. Plus, David Niven has a small role in it that he did uncredited. Want to talk about an all-star cast in a great aviation film? Remember the original 1965 version of The Flight of the Phoenix? It featured James Stewart, Richard Attenborough, Peter Finch, Hardy Kruger, George Kennedy, and Ernest Borgnine, among others. But it also featured a Fairchild C-82 flying boxcar. At the time, my favorite Air Force transport. I even had a large die-cast toy model of one. It was a fabulous film, but not without tragedy. It was Paul Mance's last film. 
He died flying the Tall Man's Phoenix P-1, an FAA-certified one-off aircraft built specially for the film. I'm not going to mention the airport films of the 1970s. The original one was interesting, but was really only an updated version of The High and the Mighty. The others got progressively sillier. But another 1970 film, Tora, 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 that, by the way, also featured George Tobias, had some spectacular aviation sequences. I remember seeing it for the first time in the theater with my dad. The Great Waldo Pepper came out in 1975 and starred Robert Redford, Bo Svensson, and Susan Sarandon, among others. I'm not sure if the last scenes in it are really all about the filming of the previously mentioned film Wings or the Howard Hughes film Hell's Angels, but it did make for some good flying sequences. The 1976 version of Midway had an all-star cast that included Charlton Heston, Henry Fonda, James Coburn, Glenn Ford, Hal Holbrook, Robert Mitchum, Cliff Robertson, and Robert Wagner, to name a few. It also had a lot of great flying scenes and was shown in Sensoround. The 2019 film of the same title was nowhere near as good and tried to compress too much of World War II in the Pacific with too little background. The 2019 version was all done with CGI, computer-generated imagery. I hate that stuff and try to avoid it. If I want to watch cartoons, I'll watch cartoons. The Final Countdown was a 1980 science fiction time travel film that featured the USS Nimitz and had some great flight scenes. It was made with the full cooperation of the U.S. Navy and featured the entire complement of carrier aircraft from the time. Sure, the F-14 Tomcats were gorgeous, but I loved seeing the A-7 Corsair IIs, the S-3 Vikings, E-2 Hawkeyes, and one of my all-time favorite carrier jets, the A-6 Intruder. I really did like the 1989 Steven Spielberg film Always, but even the first time I saw it, I was bothered that it seemed to be all too familiar. Always starred Richard Dreyfuss, Holly Hunter, John Goodman, and Audrey Hepburn. The flight sequences were fun, and I liked the film. But eventually, I realized it was based on the 1942 film A Guy Named Joe, a film I preferred. And what a great cast in A Guy Named Joe. Spencer Tracy, Irene Dunn, Van Johnson, Ward Bond, Lionel Barrymore, and Esther Williams, just to name a few. Yes, I enjoyed Always, but it was a disappointment compared to A Guy Named Joe. All right, it's time to get down to brass tacks and tell you what my favorite aviation film is and why. When the question was first posed, as you can tell, many, many films came into my head. It took some time, but I was able to quickly, well, at least quickly for me, narrow it down to two films. The first to come into my head was 12 O'Clock High. The 1949 film 12 O'Clock High was nominated for four Academy Awards and won two. Dean Jagger for Best Actor in a Supporting Role, and Thomas T. Moulton for Best Sound Recording. In 1988, it was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. The film stars Gregory Peck, Hugh Marlowe, Gary Merrill, Millard Mitchell, and Dean Jagger, among others. Some actors turned down the lead before it got offered to Gregory Peck because they thought 12 O'Clock High too closely resembled the 1949 film Command Decision. Command Decision was based on a Broadway play and is another great aviation film, but really had few shots of airplanes in it. 
It starred Clark Gable, Walter Pidgeon, Van Johnson, and John Hodiak, among others, and was a good film. But Command Decision is not at all like 12 O'Clock High. In fact, veterans of the heavy bomber campaign of World War II frequently cite 12 O'Clock High as the only Hollywood film that accurately captured their combat experience. 12 O'Clock High has also been used in leadership training in the RAF. For me, it's a very visceral film, and it was the first film that I thought of when Rob asked a question. But after careful consideration, I put it at number two. The 1938 film, The Dawn Patrol, is a remake of the 1930 film of the same name and story. But being one of the first talkies, the dialogue was redone for the 1938 version. But the original was so good that the remake even reused quite a bit of the same aerial footage. I've seen both versions, and while there is a certain appeal to the original, the 1938 version is no doubt better, and what a great film it is. The 1938 version of The Dawn Patrol stars Errol Flynn, Basil Rathbone, David Niven, Donald Crisp, and Barry Fitzgerald, and to hear tell of it, the film set was just a great place to be. Everyone truly enjoyed themselves and thrived on each other's company. You get that sense watching it. And what a great cast of aircraft. Newport 28s were the primary aircraft used for the British squadron. And an aircraft I've actually seen in person, Travel Air 4000s, were reconfigured to portray the German fighters. They were referred to as Wichita Fokkers. Other flying aircraft included some standard J-1s. The plot comes from the short story, The Flight Commander, by John Monk Saunders. It's been said that he was haunted by not being able to become a combat flyer with the U.S. Air Service during World War I, and you can feel that despair throughout the film. In some ways, the story is similar to 12 O'Clock High, but with a different spin and certainly an earlier telling with another point of view. It's also quite visceral, and it's a wonderful film. And where else can you see Robin Hood, Sherlock Holmes, and Phileas Fogg, that's Errol Flynn, Basil Rathbone, and David Niven, all in the same film. As I mentioned earlier, The Dawn Patrol was a film so nice they had to make it twice. Two versions within eight years of one another. It portrays the horror of the World War I air war, a war that is often forgotten. I learned about it through stories from my grandfather, and some I learned from my father, who also learned them from my grandfather, his father. But as I said, quite forgotten. Something we see happening now with other things. With the loss of World War II, Korean, and Vietnam War veterans, we're learning that when the participants pass, so do most of the memories. For example, we speak of 9-11 with horror, but some would say it was less disastrous than Pearl Harbor. But the latter is not really remembered any longer for as deep a tragedy as it was. Films, like books and like airplanes, are things with which we develop a special relationship over time. You've heard me talk about this before, most recently in the story I called Films with My Father that appeared in Airplane Geeks episode 718. Picking a favorite of any of those things is next to impossible, but I suppose it can be narrowed down to two or three. I think I managed to narrow it down to about 30 or so, and frankly, I don't think that's so bad. For the Airplane Geeks, here in Portland, Maine, this is your main man, Micah.
All right. What's up with the geeks? Let's see. Um, Brian, do you have something for us? Oh, just want to let everyone know that Micah and I have released the 61st episode of The Journey is the Reward. And just amazed that we're still doing that and having an awful lot of fun. And we're going to continue to do it for a while. The focus of the show has absolutely changed since I reached the goal of 3 million miles on United. And now we're doing... I guess, our flight experiences, other people's flight experiences, and every once in a while we'll have subject matter experts on board and just sort of having fun talking with aviation people about aviation stuff. Excellent. And, of course, we can find that at... Thejourneyistherewar.org is the website, and pretty much on any podcast player, it's The Journey is the Reward. Okay, very good. And Micah, you have something for us? Yeah. And first of all, hanging out with Brian on the journey is reward has been great. I got to meet his mom. I've got to meet his high school friends. I've learned so much about Brian. Boy, I've can I've got backstories for you guys. But and he got pizza. <laughs> we got pizza too. <laughs> but last week I mentioned Stephen Anian's story, Ramrod de Munster, about his first mission ever and being shot down over the English Channel. And I said that he was flying a P-47, but I reread it. I remembered it wrong. He was actually flying a P-51B. That's uh, the uh, Sharkback model before the D model, and they came out with a bubble canopy. Uh, there was the, the A, the B, and the C. And uh, so I just wanted to correct that and uh, and let people know if they if they read that. But it's Ramrod to Munster, and it's a it's a great story about how he went down. Another plane went down to get him, and 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 had to be scrapped. And they were all rescued by boat. Yeah, and there's a link to that in uh, last week's uh, two weeks ago show notes. It would have been uh, 781. And they just don't make them like that anymore because he he went down that day in the channel and. The next day, he was flying another mission. And Max Trescott, how about you? Oh, two things. I just want to mention that I got here just in time this evening to, to record with everyone because I spent the entire day flying in the mountains. Not that it takes that long to fly to the mountains, but I just wanted to mention anyone who's interested in doing a mountain checkout. Uh, typically, I do it with the local folks, but if you happen to be in the San Francisco Bay Area, you want to fly in the Cirrus or a 182 or a 206, uh, we usually we go up to three different airports, Truckee, South Lake Tahoe, and then usually one with odd terrain such as uh, Columbia. Anyway, it's great fun. It takes uh, four plus hours depending upon uh, when uh, you know which which aircraft we're using and which airports we go to and so on. And it was a spectacular day up there today. Uh, lots of snow, skiing going on up there, clear skies. It was absolutely uh, beautiful. And then uh, other thing I just want to mention is I am headed out to Knoxville this week. So uh, every year I need to do my uh, annual recurrent training for the Vision Jet. So I will be doing that again. So it'll be fun to see all my friends out there. Hey, Max, can you tell us what a mountain checkout is, what it involves, and, and why it's required? Yes. So many clubs that rent aircraft require mountain checkouts. And the reason is that uh, everything is different you know, in the mountains. And the best way to uh, to know that is to actually go fly it and understand it. So aircraft performance is greatly decreased when you're in the mountains. And we also have all kinds of weather phenomena, especially downdrafts. And downdrafts in the mountains can greatly exceed the climb capability of an aircraft. So we go through all of the, you know, the different factors that affect a mountain flying and help people understand how to do it safely. All right. A couple of shout-outs. 
as you may know, we have a donate button on the website, airplanegeeks.com. And traditionally, in January of each year, we thank those who uh, donated to the podcast in the last year. So in 2023, uh, we uh, wanted to thank Patrick G., John S., Douglas W., Nathan R., Aaron M., Martin M., Greg S., Patrick W., Gregory H., John C., Robert C., Michael S., and Ted P. I want to thank them for helping support the Airplane Geeks financially. It's a small group of people. We don't make a lot of noise about uh, you know, asking for, for donations, but we, um, we really uh, want to thank those that do. Uh, the donations don't cover the expenses. Um, there's still some out-of-pocket expenses. Uh, so if you'd like to contribute financially, uh, just take a look at airplanegeeks.com. It's over on the right-hand side. You'll see a donate button. It's just a PayPal donate button. It's pretty simple. But uh, we want to thank those who have contributed. And let's see, Micah, you uh, you ran across something very interesting. Yeah, yesterday I got a text from a former high school teacher that I happened to have lunch with, lunch with when I was uh, visiting in Tampa, and uh, she's been a listener, and she gets the hard copy of the New York Times. Now, I haven't seen the hard copy of the Sunday Times uh, this week, and I haven't seen this, but she said that in the Times opinion section of uh, Sunday's paper of this week, uh, which would have been the 14th of January, there was this, she sent me a picture of it, this shout out to the airplane geeks. And I can't see the context of it, but it says, listen to the airplane geeks hosted by a group of mostly retired aviation professionals. This weekly podcast features conversations on a wide range of aviation related topics and offers an insider's perspective on how airplane design has evolved in recent decades. Now, the New York Times may not have gotten it all right, but it was nice to be shouted to from them. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty exciting. I wonder what motivated that. I wonder how that came to be. Yeah, I wish I had the full page. I only got that little little clip. If anyone's got the Times and, and sees that and can uh, you know take a shot of that or something, send it to us. Mostly retired. <laughs> I misread it. I thought it said the show was mostly professional. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love the part that it said aviation professionals, but yet, you know, you have me on an occasion and Brian's here too, so... Yeah. Hey. Who knew? Who knew? All right. Well, we want to thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. You can find us at airplanegeeks.com. Direct link to the show notes, as I mentioned, airplanegeeks.com slash 783. Or for this episode, special airplanegeeks.com slash movies. You can use that as a reference. Check that out. Our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, let's tell folks where they can find us in other places. And Rob Mark, we'll start with you. Well, usually they will not find me in dark alleys any longer. <laughs> uh, I've tried to avoid those. But uh, usually at anything that has to do with uh, jet wine. Uh, and uh, here, oddly enough, very often on uh, recording nights. Um, and in various publications, uh, I had somebody, some, in fact, somebody sent me a text on Sunday morning and said, hey, I'm glad to see you in print. And I said, that's great. <laughs> Where'd you see that? What was it? Uh, because there's such a long lead time yeah. from the time I turn in a story until it actually runs in a magazine that I don't even remember what I wrote or all I said is, 
Did you get something from it? Did you enjoy it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's all that matters. Uh, oh, I thought you just wanted to check to make sure you got paid for it. <laughs> oh, no, I'm very good. I'm very good about that. Anybody that I've ever worked for knows that I am relentless about getting uh, uh, my actual compensation when I when I deserve it. Who's up next? David Vanderhoof. Where do we oh, find what you? Are we, what are we doing? We're closing the show, yes. David. Oh, all right. Bye, everyone. All right. <laughs> and Micah, anything you want to say? Well, if I'm not hanging out with Brian, which is a lot of fun, you can always uh, find me on Twitter still, at Mainfly. That's M-A-I-N-E, like the state, and F-L-Y, like fly. And if I've offended you, you can always write to Brian, but write to him at I am really offended at yahoo.com. All right, Brian, how do we find you online? The best place to get a hold of me is send an email to brian at airplanegeeks.com because I am not very social, so I do not participate in social media. Yeah, you're the smart one. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I'm Max Flight. You can we find do Max me. Trescott. And then we have Max Trescott. <laughs> Indeed. Where do we find you, Max? In the usual place. I encourage folks to check out the Aviation News Talk. This coming week, we're going to be talking about an ATC save where they helped uh, talk someone down from the clouds who was really in jeopardy. So check out Aviation News Talk. Anywhere you get podcasts, if you want to send me a note, just go to aviationnewstalk.com and click on contact at the top of the page. Terrific. Now me. I'm Max Flight. You can find me at uh, 30,000feet.com. And that'll point you to all the places I hang out. So please join us again next week when I hope my voice will be even a little bit better. And we'll talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. Watch some more movies. Nighty night. Fly safely. Thanks for listening. a word unless you were really good in which case you got two cents a word are you getting a lot more than that now uh i i'm up to i'm up to a... spider that's really great max uh <laughs> i does does can you hear us in here uh this did is... you know that there was anybody else here besides you uh <laughs> not why, for why a second it... there this monster insect just started walking across the boom arm here. You know, way too that. hysterical. No, so. What what kind? You know, I saw that thing coming in, and I thought, is that like a space laser or? Yeah, that what, was something from Star Wars. Thing? Yeah, it did. yeah, exactly. My little Dyson <laughs> handheld vacuum cleaner. <laughs> and of course, people that are listening have no idea what we're talking about. But as okay. usual, well, right. sorry, sorry to uh, interrupt. Go, go go ahead, proceed. <laughs>